History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is The True Inventor of Monopoly. So, Phil, if I asked you what you thought, you know, someone like Warren Buffett or maybe Donald Trump or any capitalist's favorite board game was, what would be your guess? Shoots and ladders. <laughs> You're going to make this tough, aren't you? You wouldn't it's say, like the stock you wouldn't say Monopoly? You climb up and then you slide down quickly. Uh, you, you don't think they'd choose a game where you could dominate your opponents and crush them financially until they were so dry and destitute that they had to jump out of the game and watch you win? I just don't see Donald Trump playing Risk. It seems like there's too much mental capacity involved. We wouldn't play Risk. Don't you think he'd play Monopoly? Well, what do you need fake money when you got all that real money for? Fair enough. But would you be Although surprised? He, he may not have a lot of real money himself. <laughs> see, exactly. He, he would want... I think he would enjoy winning the game. I don't think he would enjoy losing the game. Yeah, of course. But what if I told you that the true inventor of Monopoly, usually unrecognized by the game it's, itself, in fact, had political views closer to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders than Donald Trump? That would be surprising. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, Elizabeth or Lizzie Maggi, who, while vastly unrecognized for her contribution to the game we know uh, we know of as Monopoly today, um, invented the game almost 30 years before the credited inventor. Um, and we could talk a little bit about whether or not that was, you know, an unfair... I guess, uh, circumstance, because her game, as we'll see, was a bit different. It wasn't exactly as it is today, but it is pretty easy to see how a lot of components were directly influenced, if not just plain old plagiarized from her game. But to start off, let's get a, a fair background. I'm sure most of our listeners have played the game, but if you haven't, it's essentially a game of... I mean, it, it basically describes our modern capitalist system in the in the realm of real estate where you purchase uh, various lots around the board as you purchase them other players begin to pay you rent and this is a very simplified i mean there's there's dozens of other rules but as other players begin to need to pay you rent um, you start to make money and the higher value the property you buy the higher the rent is and thus it kind of leads in this this funnel effect towards one or two players having more money and eventually one player dominating the game and and the point of the game at that present is really to be the last one standing kind of, of a king often, of a hill it's often described as a game that highlights the issues that we see in capitalism sure and that is that is one of the intended purposes of of its original inventor um and I think to a certain degree, it's it's credited inventor Charles Darrow, whose story we'll get to in a minute. But just some Monopoly fast facts for everybody. It's a vastly popular game. 
Uh, it's been published in over 47 languages in 114 countries. There are, as I'm sure most people know, hundreds of different versions. There's versions for every sports team, every professional sports team that you could know, most college sports teams. Um, there's versions in many different countries, which actually do reflect the, the places of their countries. There's a Parisian version. There's a London version. Um, and those those have the properties or streets that you'd find in Paris or London? They do. As as the original, I guess, quote-unquote, original game reflects the, the streets of Atlantic City. But there's, I mean, there's so many different versions that we could probably do an entire episode just on the different versions. That's probably um, something a lot of people don't even know, is that all of the streets in the the traditional Monopoly board game are actual streets in Atlantic City. Yeah, and so so as the stories get a little bit crossed, um, Charles Darrow had spent a lot of time at Atlantic City, and, and for the rest of the episode, so people know until we get to his story, Charles Darrow is the the main one people think of when you think of the inventor of Monopoly. He's been featured in the actual game um, and as part of a, kind of a, a history pamphlet given with the board game. Um, and he's credited on numerous websites and historical sites and uh, sources as being its inventor um, and was the only known person to have thought of the game until the 1970s, as we'll see. But he said he had spent a lot of time there, but it also happened Lizzie Maggie's version of the game, I should say, was very popular with a group of Quakers that lived in Atlantic City, which is another part of the reason people think it ended up with those street names. You don't think of Quakers as being the big capitalistic business minded people that would, you know, enjoy or no. create even create the game of Monopoly. No, but you know, early and, and again, this is going to tie in when we discuss Lizzie's vision for the game. Um, they were, uh, you know, kind of a more progressive minded religious group. And that, that as we'll see, fit into the groups that generally liked to play this game early on, um, you know, before it was a nationwide and a global success. So in those hundreds of different versions, I found a few that I, th I thought were a, li a little bit special to me, at least, just because I thought they were cool stories or myself thought they would be fun to play. So the first is the most expensive version ever. Of course, a game that is based around making money <laughs> is going to eventually have, you know, an extravagant version itself. And it's tops out at $2 million. Uh, it was created so by... Monopoly Jeweler. itself benefits from capitalism. <clears throat> of course. So jeweler Sidney Mobel from San Francisco built this game in 1988. It's made from 23 karat gold, rubies, and sapphires atop the chimneys of the solid gold houses and hotels. And the dice have 42 full-cut diamonds for spots. It's not That's something amazing. you want to lose, you know? I would steal that board game. I wouldn't even play it. It was actually, it was on display at the at the... American Museum of Finance on Wall Street for a period of time. I don't know who owns it at present time, if, if any individual does, but $2 million seems like a lot to spend for a pile of fake money, although it seems I mean, to be a bit more than that. Can you imagine you're playing Monopoly on board game night with your friends, and you're sitting around your table in your living room, and someone gets mad because that's what happens in Monopoly, and they flip the board over, and they're just throwing all these... 23 karat gold ruby and sapphire pieces all across your living room screaming at you because you just made Falling them under the couch. pay all their rent for landing on boardwalk and that you're playing over 
fake money that's worth infinitely less than the pieces they just threw at you. You imagine, how many board yeah. games have you owned where you lost the dice to the game? And you're going to lose these dice oh, that I mean, have that's, pieces of diamonds exactly. inside them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, first of all, I guess you'd have to play with people you trusted because, I mean, it would be so easy to slip those solid gold houses right into your pocket. I mean, I, you're talking I about guess... Monopoly is uh, being one of those games that divides friendships. You make someone yeah. mad playing Monopoly and all of a sudden they're walking home yeah, with fine. your expensive jewelry-encrusted board game. Yeah, well, you're going to be a prick with your fake money? Well, fine. I'm going to make a couple thousand dollars off your game board pieces that I just stole. <laughs> How's that? So there's also one that I found called the Monopoly Cheaters Edition. And I chose this to talk about specifically because I feel like you and I would enjoy playing this. Not that we're... This in, is the version I cheaters, play. This but... is my normal game of Monopoly. Well, right. I mean, we we kind of thrive on arguing and debating things and disagreeing and... and the main premise of this game is they've written down a lot of the common ways to cheat in Monopoly onto cards. And throughout the game, you're assigned them via drawing. And once you're assigned one, you can choose to or to not cheat in the way that you're you're given. But the more cheats you get away with, the better you do, obviously. And there's also some rewards for cheating throughout the game. Um, but it's kind of like a version of BS, the card game, where if your players call you out, if your you know opponents call you out and catch you cheating, you get penalized and obviously don't get to get away with the cheating. So I just thought an interesting um, twist. It pays to be a good liar in this game. Yeah. Um, and then the final one, uh, where Monopoly truly starts to, I-, I think, in a big way, intersect with our theme of, of world history, I guess untalked about world history, is that in 1941, during the uh, Second World War, the British Secret Service, or I'm sorry, Secret Intelligence Service, asked the game's UK manufacturer, John Waddington Limited, which is a British name, if there ever was, <laughs> for help with a bold plan. Um, fake charities distributed a new version of Monopoly via the Red Cross to prisoners of war held by the Nazis. Uh, but unlike the usual sets, they included genuine maps, compasses, real money, and a file to help the prisoners escape. Uh, apparently awesome. with a good deal of success. How did the Red Cross get into contact with these POWs? Is there anything on that? I don't know. I don't know the full extent of that. Um, Seems like this would almost be a plan better set for like Clue or... I don't know, where you have the props that would work into the, the gameplay that give them little weapons or something like that, or even, yeah, I don't know, a, a city-specific version of Risk where you can have maps and things like that. But well, Monopoly just, it, is a pretty interesting way to go with it. Well, it just surprises me, and, and I, I would love to look this up a little bit more and learn more, but it surprises me that a group like the Nazis would be so laissez-faire about what was being delivered to their prisoners of war you know i I would expect you know maybe love letters or you know care packages but if i started seeing more than one or two editions of monopoly go through the door i'd have a question mark on my forehead and really start to investigate why so many people were interested in playing this game plus how many versions especially when they started getting out right so you you talked about some of these more interesting versions of monopoly but I mean, the, the kinds that we see a lot are things like uh, living in Ohio, we see Buckeyeopoly a lot, or 
sure. things like that. Do you know what is the more the, one of the more popular special edition versions of Monopoly? Um, I couldn't find a lot of data on on popular ones. There's a, a one that has kind of a cult following, which is a Super Mario Brothers version. <laughs> Um, where, I mean, of course, all the graphics, the gameplay is pretty similar, but all the graphics are, are completely different. Yeah, um, for sure. There's also, I mean, there's there's dozens of movie versions. There's a 007 series that is, is pretty popular, and people actually collect it because there's several different versions for, of course, each 007 movie. But I couldn't find specific data on which one is the most bought. I would venture to guess the original one, but... Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And there's that... also, there's... There's... It's just interesting the makers of Monopoly are finding ways to capitalize and make a buck on their oh, game yeah. that is based on the same premise. I mean, my, I looked in our game cabinet. My family alone has the original game, Lord of the Rings Monopoly. Of course. Steelers Monopoly. Of course. A Star Wars Monopoly. Of course. And that's those are just the ones I know of. I mean, my sister might have them. Just me alone and my parents, three of us, we have four games of Monopoly. I mean, we rarely I think play them these days, but I've only ever played really the the traditional Monopoly that everyone knows. But I remember yeah. as a kid being so overwhelmed and confused by the mortgage cards and all the houses and hotels and everything that I grew up playing Monopoly Junior, which instead of paying five hundred dollars for a property, you paid one through five dollars, and just a lot yeah. simpler version. But it it teaches kids the basics of the gameplay. We even had a cd-rom computer game of it that we we would play yeah. monopoly jr and then as you get older you start to learn the basic game rules and figure out ways to manipulate them to uh torment yeah, your friends there are I, I didn't mention it but there are a lot of different computerized editions from full regular board gameplay to they even have little handheld ones that are almost like um an old style game boy that are like you know black and white pixelated and and it's like you buy one property at a time and its value increases. I mean, I, I didn't look into exactly how those are played. Um, Cause I'm it's, sure it's, there's all kinds the of computer, phone but... apps and things like that. You could play yeah. that way as well. And of course the nationally popular McDonald's monopoly. All right. The big promotion. <laughs> I actually just thought of that. Yeah. That might but... be an interesting uh, story in itself. Some of the people that have kind of gamed that promotion to uh, make their own riches out of it. But, Maybe we'll research yeah. that for a future episode. Yeah. But anyway, um, a couple other fast facts before we get on to the stories, which I think are, are really quite interesting. And, uh, and in our debate, which I think will be even more so. Um, the longest game on record, of course, it's known for being a, a, an exorbitantly long game, which is, I think, one of the reasons it's also known for pushing people's patience with their fellow game mates. Um, because usually these games last late into the night until most people are just begging for it to end. We've had um, enough. But the the longest game on record actually lasted seventy days. Um, Sounds about right. That's how it feels when days. we play. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I had people there to deliver food and and actually a, a sort of a rotating team so that people could use the restroom. But did they sleep? Seventy. Days. I mean, they had to. They you well, couldn't I, possibly be playing a game for 70 days with no well sleep. i i think i think that's why they have the rotating teams of course but i also just wonder how how right like eventually somebody starts dominating stuff do they intentionally you know go back to losing or did they just start with a fuck ton more money now i'm sure you're going to get into some of the house rules and things like that but i've played versions of monopoly where i've you know been out front as the one who 
you know, owned all the properties and stuff and had, I think at one, one point we were playing with a group that I had all the properties, but another player had just hordes of cash that he got from playing and ended up using his money to <laughs> bail out some of the other players when they would land on my properties. And it just oh, kind of worked into like the typical capitalist versus the welfare socialist. And, um, yeah. you know, you in the end, the capitalist wins out, of course, but that definitely made the game take longer when you have one person that's bailing out the people who can't afford their own rents and mortgages and things like that. Yeah. Well, that I think is another one of the kind of intriguing parts of about the game is that I don't know, I don't feel that there's, there's just one way to, to win and dominate. I mean, there's definitely some pretty solid sure fire strategies, but for sure I've seen people play in so many different ways um, that, it is kind of, I mean, it, it does offer you a chance to be a little bit creative. So something else I found interesting is that based on statistical probability, the most commonly landed on Monopoly Square, which is kind of random, is Illinois Avenue. If you don't count jail, jail, of course, is vastly more common because there's so many different cards and, and factors that end up sending you to jail in the game. But um, because you have to roll doubles, uh, when you leave jail, odds are you're going to hit one of the orange properties, which follow them. And from there you're most likely going to hit either Illinois or BNO Railroad, uh, which makes BNO the third most common, uh, commonly landed on space after jail in Illinois. And because everything sends you towards go, that is the fourth. Uh, there were a couple interesting house rules I found, and there's there's been several public forums online that have, have formed um, to try to get these added to the point where Monopoly actually made a house rules edition where they collected some of the most popular house rules, um, which are, and I'm sure most people or many people at least are going to be familiar with these as, as I've played with almost all of them. But the first is the free parking jackpot. Um, I've almost always played with this feature. It's, it's basically, and, and you are familiar with it too, where any time as a result of the gameplay outside of rent, you're required to give up money for a fine or to get out of jail or, you know, whatever you may need to pay. It goes into this, this, you know, community pot where, you know, the corner space, I believe opposite go is free parking. Um, and if you land directly on that, you get your jackpot. Yeah. I think um, maybe that's a local thing, but a lot of people that I know play that version. It might be one of the most yeah. more popular <clears throat> house rules. I personally don't like it. Because I'm very much a traditionalist with, you know, I, I don't like them, all the free money going out to someone else when yeah. I'm not the one getting it, of course. But I know we do right. typically p play with a rule like that just because it, it does make it more interesting. It's almost like hitting the lottery in the game of Monopoly. Yeah, it, it, it does offer, I mean, it, it offers a kind of unfair, you know, purely chance based, you know, way of making money. But also, I think, especially for people who have fallen behind and are starting to feel like there's no way they're ever going to get back into the game, it offers this almost like beacon of hope. Where like, if I can just Such get free parking, life. I'm going to make... It's the government yeah, right? bailout people... of Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't afford to you know, invest any money, but I buy lottery tickets every day. Right. With hope. Um, another one that I've never played with myself, but landing directly on go doubles your take and you get $400. Are you familiar heard, with this? I've heard that one. I don't know that. I mean, in our friend group, we don't typically play that way, but I've, I've definitely heard of that one. Yeah. And then a third one that I think added to the addition was that you actually have to traverse the entire thing once before purchasing any properties, which is something I've never heard and never, never played with myself. I've heard of that too. And 
it it sort of mitigates the person who has the best roles initially buying up all the properties because they get around the board fast. But at the same time, yeah. that person still is the first one around the board and begins to buy up all the properties quickly anyway. So yeah, I, one of the other ones I've heard is um, a lot of people play that when you land on a space, you're mandated to buy that space um, mm. or that property. Uh, other people will play that you have the option and if you pass on it, it's just still available for anyone who wants to land on it next and buy it or that it could go to an auction yeah. and all the players can then bid on the property for whatever value they the want to spend thing. on it. And I think we typically don't play with the auction with our friends, but that was one that I always thought was interesting or made it sound fun because you could t- tend to get more expensive properties at a bargain or buy properties that you yourself didn't get the opportunity to land on. But, yeah, you know, our friends aren't, Oh, we all play with different strategies. I think you and I are typically more the aggressive players, but other people would just be like, uh, I don't want to bid on it. You so we, we tend to not play that rule. You can't be non-aggressive and play Monopoly. I mean, you could in, Mag- in one of Maggie's versions, but... You can play the, the... it if you don't want to win it. If you want to well, win Monopoly, true. you got to be aggressive. I also feel like we have some friends who, like, their goal when playing is to get out as fast as possible so they can stop playing. Because we've probably made them play. (laughs) We ruin board games for our friends. Yeah. And then uh, another one that I found interesting, a last one last house rule, which was actually part of Maggie's initial vision. And I think that's probably where it stems from. But um, it's that once you go around the board five times, you can start going in either direction based on your dice roll. I've never heard that one. I don't know how that works with the go thing. Like, I theoretically, you could just sit there and go back and forth across Go and just get $200 over and over and over again. That's a good now, point. Now, I don't... That also leads you dangerously close to constantly landing on Park Place and Boardwalk, <laughs> which $200 is not going to cut it. But it's an, it's an interesting kind of twist. It also, I think, would lead to everybody just circumventing Park Place and Boardwalk if no one had bought it yet to try to get it. Or just um, always going the opposite way when you land on a property that you'd have to pay rent on. Exactly. Next up, we're going to talk about the two possible inventors of Monopoly and discuss whether or not both or one of them truly deserves credit for the game's invention. But first, a short break. We'll be right back. It's everyone's favorite part of a podcast episode, the ad break. I'm sure everyone is tired of listening to us talk by now. Which is presumably exactly why you've subscribed to our podcast, to hear us talk. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. 
right, welcome back. So we've spent about a half an hour talking about the history of Monopoly and, and the culture around it. Um, and now we're going to get into a couple stories uh, about its invention and how they kind of intertwine and, and connect to one another. Interestingly enough, I didn't even know Charles Darrow's name when I started researching this, except for his relationship to Maggi. And, and as I said before, to restate, um, Charles Darrow is the, the gentleman who's given generally credit for the invention of the game, um, despite Lizzie Maggi's uh, holding a patent from almost 30 years before his um, for her landlord's game. But in researching Even her... Even so much as his name being printed in the box of Monopoly, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, he was actually included in, in a handout that was included in the game, giving him credit and explaining his story, which is, I mean, it, as you'll see, it's, a, it's kind of a cool story too, but um, it, it was funny. I didn't know his name. I was researching fast facts after reading about Maggi and kind of ran into his story over and over and over again. And if you don't type Lizzie Maggi's name in, it's almost hard to find her. There's a couple news articles that have similar titles to, you know, what we're discussing today. It's like the true inventor, but, you know, the unsung uh, unsung inventor. But Charles Darrow's story comes up numerous times over and over again as like, this is the inventor with no mention of Maggi. I mean, it's an interesting, like, from sources I would expect to, to, to be pretty, like, solid on that. But his story, if you're not familiar with it, um, goes a little something like this. So he, as as many people were, was unemployed just after the beginning of the Great Depression, the stock market crash in 1929. Uh, he was an unemployed salesman after he was laid off from a company selling heaters. That was his main job. He invented things on the side, living in Germantown, PA. After he was laid off, he struggled doing various odd jobs to support his family. His story, honestly, at least his humble beginnings reminds me of Ray Kroc from McDonald's. And we mentioned McDonald's connection yeah. to Monopoly with its promotion, but Ray Kroc, who is not the true founder of McDonald's, maybe that's a future episode, <laughs> but he's the one who really took over the McDonald's brand and made it into what we know today. He was also a traveling salesman who really struggled and kind of failed at that job until he found sort of his niche and his credit with being, you know, the, the founder of McDonald's, even though he's really not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things like hard times kind of breed these opportunities for people to, to recreate themselves or create things that'll, you know, end up taking off um, that they're really just doing at the time to, to either pass time or survive. And one of the things, you know, Charles did to pass the time, and this is again, th th this is a bit conflicted um, once we get to Maggie's story, but in, in Charles' official story, as he remembered his summers in Atlantic City fondly, he spent his spare time reconstructing the streets and adding building buildings and landmarks as the game formulated in his mind at his kitchen table. And at that time, I don't know that he was, you know, himself, if you believe his story, going for a Parker Brothers sale. But, you know... Humble beginnings, of course. He's, he's the inventor <laughs> and needs his story to be told. Right. And so after he invented this game, his family and friends quickly caught on and they started gathering nightly to play. Of course, buying, renting, and selling real estate as we do and know today. And the game was alluring, of course. Can you imagine having nightly game nights with your family or your friends and, <laughs> and playing not killing Monopoly? Them. <laughs> nope. Like, I love board games. We both do. That's, like, that's what we do is, in our friend groups is play board games. 
But how many times can you sit and play Monopoly with your friends and family before you're just over it? Not every night. But again, we're talking about the Great Depression here. It was something, you know? (laughs) That's true. But I think, I mean, people who didn't have wealth, and it's one of the reasons people enjoy the game. People who didn't have the wealth enjoyed being able to experience spending vast amounts of play money as as frivolous as, as I think they imagined, you know, people much richer than they did. Um, and I, I think they also enjoy the chance to, you know, kind of go after friends and family financially, too, in a way that was, uh, you know, in real life kind of victimless, but also fun. Soon enough, the game, the game became popular enough that friends were asking for copies of their own, and he began selling them for about $4 a piece. And he was, was he making them himself? Uh, at that time, yes. Yeah, he was making them wow. out of wood scraps and paint scraps and, and various materials. What would be $4 at the time today? That's about how much? It's actually about $80, um, which I thought was kind of shocking. I mean, I'm trying it, to think of an equivalent. Like what, what board game today? I mean, board games are not cheap. You buy what? Cards Against Humanity. No. That's probably $60 a deck or something like that. At least for the starter set. So yeah. That, and sort of on par, yeah. but at the time, that's a seems like a lot of money for a board game. It does. It does. But I mean, it was also, I think, for the day, a pretty novel form of entertainment. You think, I mean, we spend $50 easy on a PlayStation or Xbox game. I mean, and like you said, the pop, the really popular party games and board games like Cards Against Humanity are, are kind of up there. But I agree, $80 does seem... I mean, I, I go to the game store and I'm like, $40? What? Why? For Why? something that you play once, you hate your friends, then you leave it in your closet for a couple years yeah. until you want to try again. <laughs> yeah, man. it's it, it, it just seems like a lot for that time, especially, I mean, right after the, the stock market crash, people are shelling out $80 for a board game <laughs> just to escape their money woes. <laughs> so obviously the game, the game uh, gained popularity quickly and he began offering it to Philadelphia department stores. But orders increased to the point that he couldn't keep up with production, and he decided to try to sell the game rather than going into the manufacturing himself. Obviously, to avoid, I mean, he could have, I suppose, saved money until he was able to purchase or pay workers um, or purchase machinery, but he was more interested in just selling the rights. But initially, Parker Brothers turned him down. You know, in hindsight, I don't know that they would love this decision. It's kind of like the recording studio that passed on the Beatles, but blockbuster passing they, up on buying Netflix. Yeah. But they explained that the game contained 52 different fundamental errors. Um, the biggest of which were that it took too long to play surprise. The rules are too complicated and there was no clear goal for the winner. Well, you think 52 fundamental errors might be the reason that we have so many house rules today. People yeah. trying to fix their own problems by creating new rules. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's kind of wild. Like, what was his game like? It took too long to play? It takes too long to play now. It takes eight hours to play. What, what, were, days. They, what were they doing? Exactly. What were they doing? Like, they gathered nightly? Did it take all night? When did they sleep? So, I mean, it's just kind of wild to consider that they they dropped him initially because it was too complicated and then release the version that we know of. But eventually he became successful enough at success, at selling uh, the games at Philadelphia department stores that they reconsidered their offer and they negotiated the rights to the game and to market it 
allowing for them to create an alternate set of rules to simplify it a little bit. So, so consider that now. yeah, the next time you play Monopoly, you're playing the simplified version. Um, so obviously these royalties over time made him a millionaire. Um, and a few years after his death in 1970, Atlantic City, uh, the city that it's based in, erected a commemorative plaque in his honor, which stands at the boardwalk uh, near the corner of Park Place. So the two most expensive properties in the game. And that's fair. You know, we're here saying that Darrow may not have been the true inventor of Monopoly. I mean, we haven't gotten into Lizzie Maggi's story yet, but if Darrow was the one who brought in the Atlantic City tie-in, I think it's appropriate that they honor him with some kind of monument, especially at the two most notable streets of Monopoly, or most notable streets of Atlantic City, I guess. Right. Yeah. So that's Charles Darrow's story. So now we have Elizabeth or Lizzie Maggi's story. She was born in rural Illinois, so she's a fair bit older than Charles Darrow. In 1866, the daughter of an influential newspaper editor and political advocate who had actually traveled with Abraham Lincoln as he debated Stephen Douglas. So she had a pretty active, powerful father, and that bled over in in the way he raised her. Probably influenced some of her connections and ties, too. For sure, yeah. I mean, and in those days, of course, as we'll get into, the place of a woman in society still wasn't as, as solidified as it is today. And she had a fairly difficult time, you know, gaining respect and getting even the patent for her game. But for her for her time and, and place, her father's influence on her really did have an effect in, in the direction she took in life and, and the kind of the emotional and intellectual power she held. Um, and, and the it's way... also it's also worth talking about that at the time period where we are, Abraham Lincoln is a very notable Republican. And when mm-hmm. we start to talk about Maggie's political leanings and things like that, the Republican Party at the time was considered the more progressive of the two parties. Exactly. It's not it's a very contrast to what we know today is the um, Democrat Party being a lot more progressive and some of their ideology as far as women's rights and their own can't think of the term I'm looking for right here, but uh, the parties themselves have really shifted their own ideologies. So Lizzie having that connection, at least through her father to Abraham Lincoln, probably influenced a lot of her own political beliefs, even though Lincoln is known as a Republican compared to what we know today. Yeah, I mean, she was an incredibly progressive woman, um, both in her view of women's rights and advocacy and, and economically, of course. One of the prominent things she actually did, aside from the invention of the game was she was a prominent woman's advocate and one of the biggest stunts to her name is that she offered herself for sale in an advertisement as as a young woman american slave to the highest bidder which this is interesting to hear because she's a white woman yeah at a time where slavery is still you know we're talking about the age of lincoln where we're trying to move past the point of slavery but to draw that comparison as a free white woman to slaves at the time is pretty drastic that's pretty stark I mean, and notable and i think maybe that was her goal um I, and i also think maybe at the time it, it probably wasn't in a weird way seen as as taboo to use that comparison it is to as it is today I, I i can't really speak to that too much i i obviously wasn't there and and i haven't read too so much nobody about... canceled lizzie maggie after this wasn't <sighs> trending on twitter Not... Not quite, no. Um, but, I mean, her, her, her goal was, as a woman's advocate, to display the limited 
uh, options for for young women, which in in this case she really intended to display that the only option was marriage, the the only viable option. You know, they could work as secretaries or stenographers, and but those weren't well paying jobs, and there was really no viable route for most women into higher paying or more influential positions aside from finding a husband who was either higher paid or influential. And did she get any offers on her advertisement? Did she get any takers? Um, I, I couldn't fi- I wanted to find that. I couldn't find anything out. I mean, it did garner enough uh, attention to, to get supporters to pay attention to her. And she actually said, you know, as I said, to supporters that the goal of her stunt was to make a statement about the dismal position of women stating, quote, we are not machines. Girls have minds, desires, hopes, and ambition. And the, the, the interesting thing is that, not surprising, I suppose, if you understand American history, but that this even needed said, that this was probably a, a progressive, this was a, a progressive statement. Girls have minds, desires, hopes, and ambition. What? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's wild that that needed said, and it's, it kind of points to, I think, maybe the reason why offering herself as a slave wasn't seen as kind of that drastic because women's position really was a lot, you know, worse off than they than they are today. Um, I mean, they hadn't gained the right to vote yet. Like I said, they there were only African American men were granted the right to vote before women. Yeah, um, so it, you know, it wasn't it was in no way a, a I don't know what word to use a cakewalk a was not a pleasant, I suppose, existence for women like Maggi who, you know, had those hopes and ambitions and desires of her own, um, you know, to to do more than just be a wife and, and raise children. Right. Um, and of course, she, I mean, she stuck by that. She didn't marry until the age of 44 and supported herself almost the entire time. Um, as I mentioned, Two of the things women could be were a secretary and a stenographer, and she did both of those, as well as writing poetry and short stories. She also performed comedic routines on stage, which was another thing that was kind of wildly unknown for for women to do. I'd love to see some examples of that. Like, I want to I want to know what her show was like. I wish there was video camera. Yeah, right. So I mean, it, it, I'm I think it would. I mean, be... even that that advertisement advertising herself as a female slave kind of probably has some comedic end to it as well oh i'm sure i mean it, at least satirical it certainly is sarcasm. i mean it's 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 irony it's satirical it's sarcastic in a way i also am kind of interested to know what comedy was like back then like we know what stand-up comedy is now but probably a little different in the late 1800s i feel like it was a bit different I couldn't find any examples of her writing, unfortunately, outside of, you know, the quotes given about her game and and the patent that she wrote. But she did actually, prior to inventing, about 20 years prior to inventing Monopoly, invented a typewriter invention that basically allowed the paper to move through with more ease. Um, So Monopoly wasn't her first go of it, and she clearly had a, a diverse set of skills. But her obviously her biggest achievement was her board game the landlord's game which at its base was for her an expression of her strongly held political beliefs which like i said were very progressive economic beliefs she drew a lot of the inspiration for her game from economist henry george and his book progress and poverty which was published in 1879 he was 
an intellectual who believed that individuals should own 100% of what they made or created, but that everything found in, in nature, particularly land, belonged to everyone. Um, and kind of on that basis, he advocated for a land value tax, also known as the single tax, the general idea of taxing land and only land rather than property that could help shift the tax burden towards wealthy landlords of the time and off of the you know common man. Now, can you go into the land value tax a little bit? I don't know how much you've researched all this, but you know, I, I'm a tax expert myself, but for those listening that may not fully understand it. <laughs> Aren't we all? Um, I I spent a fair bit of time trying to understand this, and I'm sure there are economists out there that could explain this far better than I, but essentially if you take two plots of land, both an acre, one is a vacant lot, another is a lot with you know anything built on it, a structure, a, an apartment building, a business, whatever. Let's make it an apartment building for simplification. Both are worth $100,000. The house or the property, the building, is worth $300,000. So we have a total of $500,000 between the two. So the, let's say in our city with these two lots, the total value of, of property and land is $500,000. So tax at 10%, we're looking at $50,000. That has to come from somewhere. So obviously the person who has the property and you know, the land and the building is going to pay four-fifths of that. They're going to pay $40,000, and the person with just the land is going to pay $10,000 because they only own $100,000 worth of stuff. That's under the property tax that we know of. And it, one of the reasons why we do that is just because we've always done it. It's that classic American thing. We've always done it. it. Technically, I mean, a lot of economists think that the, the land value tax is the smarter option, and, and I'll explain why. So let's say we don't tax the property at all the the building we just tax the land now both are paying twenty five thousand dollars in taxes equally now what this does is it encourages people to improve their properties first because you know under property tax the more you improve your property the higher its value goes up and this is bad for you if you want to save money on taxes right one guy was paying four times more than the other guy just because he had a building instead of a vacant lot so it encourages progress it encourages urban development it encourages you know landlords to create better living conditions instead of just letting their buildings get more and more run down um, and it encourages also in a, in a supply and demand field people with vacant lots who have no desire to do anything with them to sell them to other people because there's less there, there's more people that want to do something with that land and thus the demand for it will go up Maybe not so beneficial to the farmers or the rural uh, property owners, though, who might own a ton of land that doesn't have as much construction on them as it would be to, say, an apartment not necessarily building owner well, in a big city. But the thing is, when you think about that, it actually didn't do too much. I mean, because urban properties were so much more expensive, it had a bigger effect there. Rural properties generally had much less value attached to them and in in an area like that the the density of structures is pretty much the same uh, give or take i mean you're right to an extent but this actually ended up helping rural folks a little bit more than it helped you know urban developers 
especially wealthy ones. I mean, wealthy ones got penalized. Another thing you need to understand, and I'm sure this still happens today, but a common practice of the day was to buy land as if you were buying stock and do nothing with it. You know, you just buy, you don't plant crops, you don't build a, you know, housing. You literally bought land and waited for its value to appreciate and then sold it again. It made this not, I mean, I mean it made this hugely, it made it basically economically undesirable because you were paying way more for just that. I mean, you were paying the same amount for that base land as you would getting people to pay your rent. So it was beneficial as long as you're using your land rather than letting it sit vacant. Right. It's beneficial if, if you're the, the biggest thing about it um, is that it encourages more and more efficient building and housing and, and, you know, business lots. It, it, it encourages efficient and, you know, more progressive development so that dilapidation and, and then the other thing that comes with that is that everybody's property values go up. If everybody's developing and improving their lots, the property values go up instead right. of In vacant. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course. But anyway, I don't want to bore everybody with a giant economics lesson. But of the day, People this was... People don't like caring about land taxes. This was seen we as... Lizzie. <laughs> well, and, and she actually... in included this and we'll get into this this was the land value tax was a prominent rule if you will of her game but of course george and folks like him including maggi weren't super keen on folks like the rockefellers and the carnegies and and her game was kind of a response to their enormous wealth Um, for those who don't know a lot about them they were both extraordinarily wealthy business magnates at the turn of the century Rockefeller founded the Standard Oil Company, uh, which ended up being broken down into, you know, ExxonMobil. I mean, basically the largest... He was essentially, he was the Bill Gates of the time before yeah, there was I mean, software. He, they, they controlled, the Standard Oil Company controlled 85% of the U.S. oil, which was what made it a monopoly in, in the eyes of, you know, the, the U.S. government when... You know, they broke, they had the antitrust legislation that was passed and what broke up Standard Oil into different oil companies like Exxon, which are still, I mean, some of the most wealthy companies on the planet. So when you consider that his company was broken down into multiple of the most wealthy companies on the planet, it's kind of wild. And he he ran the company from 1870 when he founded it until 1897. Um, And even after that, he remained its largest shareholder. At his peak net worth, this is crazy. When we, I mean, we know people like Bezos and Bill Gates, right? At his peak net worth in 1913, he was worth 1.4 billion or 418 billion adjusted for inflation in today's dollars. That makes him more wealthy than Bezos, twice almost. Quite a bit, yeah. Bezos today about one 184.4 billion net worth. Yeah, and and what's even crazier is that. If you consider not just inflation in dollar amounts, but share of the U.S. economy, Rockefeller made up 2% of the GDP. He, if you consider that metric, he's four times richer than Bezos. So, I mean, it's just enormously wealthy men who, I mean. So what you're saying is Lizzie Maggi had a problem with uh, things like this. Absolutely. People controlling all the wealth. Absolutely. Oh, and, and one of the things she believed, too, in, in, in her discussion of the game and its implications is that a lot of social tri- – I mean, this is – 100 years later, we're having the same conversation. A lot of the social problems of her day she saw as direct results 
of people like Rockefeller holding so much money. You know, the scarcity scene at the bottom was a for her a result of, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie holding enormous amounts of wealth. And Carnegie, similar situation, founded Pittsburgh's Carnegie Steel Company, which ended up being U.S. Steel after he sold it to J.P. Morgan for over $303 million, which helped him surpass Rockefeller as the richest American for several years. Uh, he landed at about $375 billion, which still... Still almost Still twice double. as rich as Bezos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a stupid amount of money. Um, poor, poor Bezos is a little, uh, he's feeling poor right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just an enormous amount of wealth. Generations of their their offspring were still the richest people on Earth. Like, for several generations, it was, I mean, and we, of course, know their names. Because there's dozens of public you know, facilities and parks and spaces that are, named by them and of course they did do to be fair their fair share of philanthropy and gave a gave away of a lot of their wealth but if you believe maggie and and george's position that they created enormous disparity at the bottom of the ladder because of their wealth then they're i mean their philanthropic efforts are kind of seen as more of a band-aid and less of just generosity but anyway this is her her inspiration one of her inspirations for the game and so in 1903, she filed a patent for her landlord's game, which, like I said, is more than three decades before Parker Brothers began manufacturing Monopoly based on Charles Darrow's version. And, and did Parker Brothers know about this when they were in talks with Darrow to buy his game? They did. I mean, I don't know that they knew when they were in talks with Darrow, but they knew before production because they bought her um, her patent, several of her patents, for about $500 in order to start distributing and manufacturing the game without legal trouble. Well, that, I mean, that's good for her that she got some recognition, but that's clearly not probably the full recognition that she deserved for this game. I mean, when you consider that Charles Darrow became a millionaire and that for inflation, $500 is just under 10000 now. $10,000 or a million. Like, so that's peanuts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's... Even to like today, I would be happy to get it, but it wouldn't even really be a life-changing amount of money in, in a lot of ways. So the biggest, I think, mark of her game, which clearly displayed her goals, was that it had two sets of rules, an anti-monopolist rule set and a monopolist set. Of course, a monopolist set was a little bit closer to what we know today, um, where the game is to dominate, the game is to win, to collect as much money as possible, and the rules that she created for that set made that easy. The anti-monopolist set was very interesting, and like I said, it kind of all centers around that land value tax. So to get into the rules of her game, the board setup was similar to what we know today. There were 22 lot tickets, supposed to be labeled green. Interestingly enough, instead of you know rolling dice and going around the board to get things players drew from the pile until 12 were drawn total and then you could choose to purchase them or not um, after all 12 were either bought or replaced the game would begin so people started the game already owning properties of course her game did include yeah yeah of course her game did include the railroads um, of different names but again this wasn't based off of atlantic city at that time it included the water and lighting utilities but it also included an interesting fourth type of space which were what she called absolute necessities, and these you had to pay. It's worth mentioning, when you landed on, on the lot tickets in her game, you could, or the lot spaces, you could choose to rent the space, which, I mean, 
basically your money's out the window. You could choose to buy it and then you would receive the rent or you could neither do neither and just move on. But the absolute necessities, food, fuel, shelter, and clothing, you had to pay. Now, of course, it was less than the lots were worth, but you still had to pay these. Uh, and this is important to understand later because it, 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 that starts to have a big effect when you consider the land value tax. So let's get into that. The, the, the anti-monopolist set basically instituted this land value tax where in addition to paying rent to people who own the spaces... Every time you landed on a space, including if you landed on one you owned, you had to pay into the public treasury, as she called it, a land value tax. Hmm. I believe it was only $5, but every time you landed on a lot, it was $5, $5 to the public treasury. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and this is how the anti-monopolist set benefited everybody. And that was her goal, was to show that in the Monopoly version, one person wins and everybody else loses, and in the anti-monopoly, everybody wins, because as the public treasury hit $50, it purchased the water and lighting utilities. And those became free. So when you landed on them, nothing happened. And then, again, you paid into it until it hit 50 And then it started purchasing railroads. Every 50 it purchased railroads until the railroads are free. And then it did this with the, the necessities, the, fu- the food, the fuel, the shelter, the clothing, until everything but the lot spaces were just free. And then after that... Every $50 it went up, it made the go space $20 bigger. At the time, it was $100, but after 50 it would go to 120 and then 140 So eventually, I mean, the more people pay this land value tax, the more in the game sense, the public, the, the government owns necessities and utilities and things like that. And it's thus free to the, the people. And you're really just left with buying and renting properties and you keep getting more and more money from passing go. So everybody just keeps getting richer and richer. And it's not, it doesn't create this funnel into doom. Now I don't understand how you win this version. I was going to say it would be interesting to play this game in comparison to monopoly to play both versions, but it really seems like with this land value benefit, the game would take forever well, I don't think There's it so really much ends. less ways for people to run out of money. Or, I mean, in theory, people would eventually run out of money when they start landing on properties or lots instead of sure the utilities and stuff that's paid for. Because, I mean, like life, you're going to have necessary expenses, even if a lot of your needs and utilities and everything are taken care of. But, I mean, the game would definitely take longer for one person to accumulate all of the wealth and to drive the others into bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah, and... I mean, I've thought about this a bit in, in researching how it worked. And I think, I mean, obviously the game was created as a teaching tool. And that's like her, her, her anti-monopolist set was not intended to be an end game. Like it, I mean, I suppose her intended reaction would have been eventually, well, look at us all doing great. Let's be progressive economists. economists. But um, to play the devil's ad- advocate here, and this doesn't need to be a long argument back and forth, but you know, the, the, common objection to this would be that one person who's landing on the utilities is using up a lot more of the necessities landing on all the necessity spaces and the utility spaces they're consuming all of the resources and it's not fair that all the other players have to pay into this and pay out their benefit it has to get to 50 dollars that everyone's contributing to that money to pay for the one person who's consuming all the resources right that's a lot of the argument that we hear today so it's not a utopian system it would definitely take longer for 
everyone to run out of resources eventually or run out of finances eventually. But at the same time, you are still having the people who can afford it funding the resources for the people who can't. Absolutely. And, and again, I think in my personal, this is just my personal opinion, but the, the threshold, the kind of line in the sand in the completely free market and socialist argument is, do you believe that the government's responsibility is to take care of all of these life, I don't know, life expenditures for people? Um, and in, a, in another way, it's kind of a moral question in, in that, do you believe it's your responsibility? Because the government's not going to pay for it magically. You're going to pay the taxes, like you just said. So I, I think you get back to this place where, do you believe that it's your responsibility to ensure, you know, whoever doesn't have to pay for the railroad, <laughs> doesn't have to pay for the lighting and, and the water. And I think that's another, I mean, every single, every single argument about that, you know, it can be healthcare, it can be utilities, it can be food, it can be shelter. And I think there's a new argument to be had with all of those and what, it, what should be a right and what should be a worked for and earned privilege. But so what was the reaction like to some of her more progressive ideas coming from the game like this? I mean, at the time, I don't know a whole lot about the political reaction. Of course, she was, I mean, not, this is not, of course, to downplay her invention, but she was a woman creating a board game in, in the turn of the century. Um, and, of course, didn't even get credit for it until the 70s. So I don't think it was seen as a political force. It was very popular, though, among progressive liberals, and especially younger progressive liberals, it ended up being a folk favorite among left-wing intellectuals, particularly in the northeast part of the country, um, schools such as the Wharton School of Finance and Economy, as it was called at the time, Harvard University and Columbia University. So it, it did, I mean, it became popular. I think the anti-monopolist part became popular with those groups. But, of course, as we know, the monopolist set is more fun. <laughs> and it, 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 is, it, it became more popular and more in demand. It's I more think, fun if you're winning. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, of course, I mean, yeah, but I think she understood that it, it like I discussed during Darrow's story, it provides a context where you could lash out at your family and friends financially in ways that you can't in life, or most people, I suppose, can in life. And and she understood that it had a kind of dramatic potency of kind of role-playing outside of one's normal everyday experience. And it, it really was, I mean, that, that is why I think the Monopolist set kind of took off as, as the more popular part of the game. And why I anticipate that the anti-Monopolist set probably didn't have a definite ending, which is why, like, it was kind of hard, harder to play on a regular basis. In addition to being really popular, though, at, at all of these business, and business schools and, and Ivy League schools, there's a community in Atlantic City um, referred to as the Quakers or Friends which is a religious movement. If you're not familiar with them, a quick note on them. It was a branch off of English Christianity. They were founded in England in the 17th century by a gentleman named George Fox. They were persecuted for their beliefs. Being a bit progressive for the time, they, they believed in the idea that the presence of God existed in every person. They reject, rejected outright elaborate religious ceremonies, so fairly humble rituals. They didn't have an official clergy, and they believed in spiritual equality for men and women, which was the big one here, and the why I think they caught on to the game as quickly as they did. Um, so they, I mean, 
because of this, they were you know part of both the abolitionist and women's rights movements to a pretty big degree. But I think that's, I mean, really why the game took off with them. And in, in Maggie's, I suppose, historical version of the story, um, and this, of course, isn't her version. It's the one that was written about her. But in, in this version, the Quakers developed the Atlantic City version, which Charles Darrow was taught to play and decided to form his own version of and sell. <laughs> so Darrow stole it from the Quakers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Her her identity was, as I said, kind of hidden for a while until it was discovered by accident um, in 1973 by an economics professor by the name of Ralph Anspach. Um, and he, he was trying to make his own anti-monopoly game when he discovered her patent and kind of switched gears and began a decades-long battle to kind of tell, you know, discover the truth of, of what he called the monopoly lie. And that's how her story began to get told. But, you know, I think after 40 years today, even now, with all the internet that we have, the Darrow myth is still out there. Obviously, I said I, I ran into it dozens of times with no mention of Lizzie um, in the article. So, and, and in looking at both of the games, there are some differences. I mean, of, of course, the... the anti-monopolist rule set is completely thrown out in the in Dara's version. He also was the one that created the the houses and and the actual house pieces and that's where the the common or, or I guess the the modern design aesthetic design of the game came from. The landlord's game was vastly different in its aesthetics, but concept-wise it was pretty much the same. So you've obviously read up a lot on the history of both versions of this do you believe that darrow really stole the game from magi or did he kind of invent his own version that was just similar to the ideas that she had i mean obviously it's striking how similar the games are but the idea of proposing the model of capitalism in a way in board game form isn't that unique in its own sense yeah you know, I think I, I don't I don't think Charles Darrow is like a bad guy. I don't think he like found Lizzie's game and was like, I'm going to sell this for so much money. I think he was taught it as this kind of folksy, you know, round the table at, at, after dinner game that he hadn't seen on shelves. And it was 30 years after Lizzie created it. And obviously her story hadn't been thoroughly told. If anything, it was told by word of mouth, hand me down myths through dozens of levels of people. So. I think it was probably more likely that he just was taught this cool folksy game that wasn't in in the market and decided, you know, I'm doing really poorly as a, as a unemployed heater salesman doing odd jobs for my family. And let's see if I can take this off the ground, especially after, you know, he's created his own, I mean, whether or not he, I guess the biggest contentious point is, did he create the Atlantic city version or, you know, get it from the Quakers, but either way, after seeing how popular it was, I don't know that, we can really fault him for wanting to take it to Parker Brothers. This really might be more of a commentary on, you know, society at the time that Lizzie may have had the original idea for this. And obviously it was a very complex idea, complex game that would be hard to even put together and sell. Even Darrow's version had 52 fundamental arrows and was too complicated, but it seems like her version was even more complicated. But to even give the credit to a woman and an outspoken progressively political woman at the time just might not have been accepted. Totally. And, and Parker brothers itself wouldn't have been wanting to take on that statement 
of having her as the face and the founder of the game. Not to say that that's right, right that she shouldn't be given the credit for it, but that probably had a lot to do with why Darrow is known as the creator of Monopoly and not this other woman who would have been more polarizing for them. Right. Yeah. And I, I also wonder, like, you know, she was offered about, in, in that time's money, $10,000. How much did she know about Darrow? Did she know he had already sold this other game to them? Um, or was she just like, wow, you guys want to buy this for $10,000? Sure. This is just a folksy thing I made ten year, or 30 years ago. Like, I think, I mean, for me, just what I've read about her, I think if she knew the full story, she would have been a little bit more feisty and fought back about it. Like, I don't think she would have just kind of often sold it for 500 bucks. She probably would have at least talked up the deal a little bit. But again, she may people... not have known what it would have turned into. Well, of course, yeah. Implications I mean... of her game beyond just a fun experiment that she had with her friends and things like that. Right. And I mean, she also probably wasn't interested in becoming a millionaire you know given her views which is another position that's that's given a lot in in terms of like why didn't she come forward sooner but you know i think it's it's kind of important for people to know and you know we've talked a while about this but i think it's it's good to wrap up with one of her preferred quotes which was from a henry georges publication land and freedom uh, in, in their 1940 edition which sums up, I think, her her view of, of politics and her view of economics and advocacy, and activism, and, and one of the reasons why she made the game. Basically, what is the value of our philosophy if, if we do not do our utmost to apply it? To simply know a thing is not enough. To merely speak it or write of it occasionally among ourselves is not enough. We must do something about it on a large scale if we are to make headway. These are critical times and drastic action is needed. I don't know if creating the board game Monopoly in her mind at the time would have been considered a drastic action, but given the game's enormous cultural applicability and popularity, I think it's important that people know that it was born with her, whether carried through Daro or not, um, because it, it does kind of carry her legacy of wanting people to understand the powers, the economic powers at play, even a hundred years later. And this was a way for her to kind of speak out in a more subtle way that might be accepted by more people to create a game that displays the way she felt that the, the political landscape should work. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it definitely, I think, speaks in, like you said, in a, in a way that people are going to understand better than her standing on a podium yelling about her views ever would have, even even today. So, so you ready to test out your knowledge of Monopoly? Oh, let's do it. I mean, I've talked so much about it that I don't, I don't know what else there is to ask, but hit me with what you got. We'll be right back. All right, so we like to end every episode with a short little quiz to test out our host's knowledge of his subject and also just give you guys a little bit of interactive way to see how much you know about the topic already. So I have three questions for you. I'm going to ask you two specifically about Monopoly and one about Lizzie Maggi. You ready? All right. Yeah. Let's do it. So, well, first of all, what what piece do you choose? What game piece do you choose when you play Monopoly? Ah, uh, you know, I like the dog. I like the little Scotty dog. Probably the most popular one, at least Usually, for the I people mean... that I know. So your question, how many of the original 10 pieces... In Darrow's game, can you name the original 10 game pieces? 
that you could choose from to play as? Oh, man, the original 10. I mean, I – so I know at some point they changed, but I believe the original 10 were uh, – and I don't even know if these were Daros, but we had a battleship, the top hat, the Scotty dog, a boot, a race car, either an iron or a cat. They replaced – the iron with the cat at some point and shoot there's one more uh thimble there's a thimble too so you got six and a half of the original 10 because it wasn't a boot oh man originally it was a shoe but yeah i mean you got a lot (laughs) (laughs) you got a lot especially the ones that have still exist today um the battleship the top hat the race car thimble uh the shoe turned into a boot um the current game pieces that we have that aren't in the original ones are uh the wheelbarrow and the cat the wheelbarrow Um, but the original game pieces that you didn't mention um or at least i don't know if you mentioned the iron uh there was a purse a lantern a cannon and a rocking horse were some of the ones in the original game uh there's been a lot of mentioned the iron but there's been a lot of pieces that have the changed in I and didn't. out over the years. There's some special versions. Uh, there was an elephant yeah. at one point, uh, a money bag. So the the pieces have changed at times. And I remember it being a big notable thing when the cat became a piece. Uh, but mm-hmm. there were 10 original There's actually a T-Rex now. Is there really? <laughs> That's yeah, I was looking at, at some of the like the newer pieces, but there's a T-Rex now. There's a couple goofy ones that like I don't even know if I like. I like the kind of folksy old... All right, so we'll move on to your second question. This one is more about general board game knowledge. Um, we talked a lot about Monopoly. Monopoly is the fourth best-selling board game of all time. Can you name the top three? Oh, my God. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. These three have a significant head start on Monopoly as far as their invention. Oh, Lord. Um, hmm. One I'm going to say, not not number one, but one of the... Do I have to name them in order? If you can name them in order, in order that'd be more impressive. But I'll just... I'll let you guess them. I'm going to say Sorry. Sorry is not in the top um, three. Dang. I've just... I've seen it so many places. The Game of Life? <laughs> That's probably top ten, but it's second. not in the top three. You're, these are way more obvious than what you're thinking. Risk? Also top 10, but <laughs> Is that a, not more dang. popular than Monopoly. I'm honestly not sure outside of this. I mean, chess, does that count as a board game? Chess and checkers? Chess is number one. Chess was invented okay. in 1200 okay. AD or around. These are obviously just based on historical findings and similar versions of the game. Chess is the newest of the top three. The other two are both okay. oh. early versions of the games were discovered in artifacts from around 3000 BC. Number two oh, is Lord. Checkers, and number three, Backgammon. Ah, uh, see, I, yeah, right. I wasn't. I was thinking way too like more specific modern, and new like, age. Yeah, legitimate, legitimate board. Not, I guess, not that they're not legitimate, but. All right. So All right. we'll go to your last question. This one's more about Lizzie Maggi. Uh, in 1910, Parker Brothers published a humorous card game invented by Lizzie Maggi. Can you name it? <laughs> no, I can't. Dang, how did that not come up? 
<laughs> the game was called Mock Trial, and it sounded really no. interesting. It it was a card game, and it would be really good for a party, like a big group. I think I found an advertisement for it, which um, if we get a website up and running or maybe on our Instagram, we will post this article on here and or this advertisement for it. And it says it could be played from 6 to 20 players, I believe. And basically it assigned people roles. So you were either the judge, the prisoner, lawyers, witnesses, hmm. and everyone else would just be a member of the jury or something like that. And the, all the cards were humorous. Your roles were kind of funny. Uh, and it gave out the story of the trial. But I don't know, it sounded fun to play. You'd have to basically litigate your your trial yeah. and uh, see if you want to prosecute the prisoner. Yeah. I'd be interested to get my hands on that. We'll, we'll have to look that up and see if we can find a game of mock trial or if you're listening and want to send it to us, if you find it somewhere, we would really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. All right. It's been a fun, fun hour and a half. We spent a long time talking about monopoly. I uh, just want to thank you guys again for listening. Hope you learned a little bit today and, um, enjoyed finding out the, the true story of Monopoly's invention and are inspired to pick up a, a set and play with your friends or hate them or whatever you do when you play Monopoly sometime soon. Matt and I are going to go play Monopoly after this and we'll see if there's an episode three following this one. I'm going to need another beer if we're going to do that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.